join us for Mountain Land Physical Therapy's 7th Annual Running Summit Conference, which will take place on September 29th and go through October 1st, taking place in awesome Park City, Utah. Led by the experts in the field of running medicine, the Mountain Land Running Summit will give participants a deeper look into the common issues regarding runner's health and the innovative treatment plans now available. Participants can also earn up to 12 and a half CEU credits and can enjoy various recreational activities in Park City. Early bird pricing available, so buy now. Welcome to episode 73 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Heiderscheid from the University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine. And here, as always, with my co-host, Jeremy Stoker. How you doing, Jeremy? Good, Brian. How are you? I'm still recovering from that podcast flip we did last time. Well, um, yeah, I was... I'm not sure I liked being on the other end of the microphone. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt how fast you took that back. Like, you know, you did the welcome today just right away. I was like, oh, man, they're back again. You know, Brian's that's in right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm not giving that up. You're going to have to fight me for it. Uh, all right. So no, let's just... Good. Yeah. Let's jump into it. As again, as always, send questions and feedback to podcast at mlrehab.com. Always look for your, your advice and uh, regarding future guests and any feedback you have on our uh, our content. Okay, today we are welcoming back a former guest to the podcast, Christine Agresta from the University of Washington. Uh, Dr. Agresta is an assistant professor in the Division of Physical Therapy in the Department of Rehab Medicine at the University of Washington and affiliate faculty in the Department of Kinesiology at Seattle University. Her research focuses on developing assessment and monitoring techniques that improve clinical decision-making regarding athlete care and athletic performance. She has received funding from the Foundation for Physical Therapy, Diodora SPA, and Adidas AG for her current and prior work. Welcome back, Christine. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We've got to get you back on here. We always want our, our guests back and certainly the work that you're doing and have continued to done since we last spoke with you. We've got to update our listeners on all the great stuff you've got going on. Really, thanks. So let's see, last time we chatted, I think you had just got to Washington. Yes, I did. Yeah. So I've been here three and a half years, so two and a half COVID years. And <laughs> regular year. <laughs> yeah, what do those count for? I don't know. You know, is it longer or shorter? I don't know. It's everywhere. <laughs> I know. I know. So yeah, yeah. It's nice to be here. It's good, good vibe here in Seattle. Lots of runners and uh, a nice department. Yeah, that's great. Certainly some some great colleagues there as well mm -hmm. uh, in the running medicine uh, um, field. So you're surrounded by some good talent for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Some of which you've had on, right? Brian Crayback was there. Exactly. I think one of, one of your co-authors on the paper we're going to talk about today, Mark Harris. Yep. I've known him for a bit. And then uh, uh, Kim Harmon as well through yep. athletics. Yeah. She's great. So good group, good group of sports med colleagues for sure. All right. So today we're going to talk about footwear. Now, last time we didn't talk about footwear. I know you've got a lot of, of, uh, of experience in the footwear area and a lot of work that you've done in that space. Um, we're going to target one particular paper that you recently published, but maybe let's just start a little bit about footwear. And I want to get your thoughts on this because I think this is an area that has evolved tremendously in the last couple of decades. You know, I I had done some footwear work back in grad school 25 years ago and haven't really touched much of it since. But how I advise patients uh, now versus then is much different, I think, in terms of what I would do for footwear. So I want to take you back to mm -hmm. pre-PhD, pre or Christine pre-PhD. 
And you've got a running patient, right? That yes. You're coming into your clinic and they're going to ask you the age old question of, am I wearing the right running shoe or what running shoe should I be wearing? Yeah. Yeah. How okay. would you answer that then? So I've been thinking about this question. So for the, for the listeners, I treated in a downtown uh, clinic in Chicago. I've managed that clinic for about four, four or five years before I went to get back to get my physical therapy or my physical therapy, my PhD degree. And uh, so I saw lots of runners. We were well connected with the Chicago area runners association and I was a runner myself. And so, you know, just by word of mouth, you get to see a lot of, of patients. And to be honest, I really didn't think footwear mattered that much, <laughs> right? I, I am definitely of the, um, of the opinion or was of the opinion that you need to fix yourself, right? Fix the runner. And then whatever shoe you decide to be in, you can, you can write that turbulence, right? Whatever perturbation or whatever kind of variability comes your way. If you're a strong enough runner, it, it won't matter. So truly I didn't, um, I didn't really give it much thought. And I was, you know, kind of towing the line with all, probably all the other physical therapists saying, well, you don't look like you have a uh, uh, flat arches. So I don't think you need a motion control shoe. Um, and, and that was pretty much the, I would say the recommendation until born to run came out. <laughs> so, um, you know, right. It, it was mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, was still treating in the clinic and I had a runner who I'll give you a backstory. He had recently fractured his Achilles or fractured his calcaneus. Mm -hmm. He subluxed his cuboid and he had a second metatarsal stress fracture, right? So I was seeing him post this and I had seen him a bunch of times, right? Repeat offender. And he walks in one day with the book under his arm. And he's like, I think I'm going to get, I think I'm going to get minimal, these, these barefoot running shoes. And I was like, no, uh -uh. absolutely not. Right. And that really kind of changed, I think, born to run in this idea that there is this magic bullet and it's called footwear and that will change and fix everything um, really kind of made me start thinking about how all the other pieces of the, the pie, rather all the other things that you really don't treat, you, you still have to understand a bit of and, and give your patients some good recommendations. So, so, I, so yeah, that was kind of my general recommendation going in. And, and to be honest, even in my PhD, I really didn't think footwear mattered that much, right? Other than the, you know, clear glaring, you, if you're overweight, you know, putting on a minimal issue is not magically going to clear up your back pain. If you're, if you have a really hypermobile foot, putting that on is not magically going to clear up your, uh, you know, all your problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I started my postdoc at Michigan and they were doing a lot of footwear research. And I just kind of, to be honest, kind of happened into it and started thinking more about you know, footwear doesn't cause injury, right? That seems to be pretty established, right? There's not a, there, if you are going to get injured, footwear might be one piece of the straw that's pushing you over, right? People definitely have sensitivity. Uh, certain people have a sensitivity to footwear, but we really don't understand. We, we don't have good measurements to understand how we just, how we determine who those people are without very, you know, sophisticated instrumentation. Um, so really working to see, you know, what, uh, what other experiences can footwear bring? And that's what I've done largely for the last, you know, 
three or four years. You know, footwear is not going to make you more injury prone, but it could shape the way that the running experience that you have. And so we've did a, did a lot of, of work until on that until recently where, you know, the last few years in the Vaporfly, I think is another big marker in time where, you know, things really have changed. And so now we're kind of moving on to, you know, how can, um, who and how can you kind of exploit the technology that's in the shoe, right? How do we best pair the runner to footwear for the, for the desired purpose? Yeah. So that's actually a good transition point that I think mm-hmm. that's important is the, the technology in the shoe, right? Cause mm-hmm. the technology that's in the shoe is really all about trying to address whatever issue that either the footwear manufacturer or the running science in uh, field says is important mm-hmm. for either performance or injury risk reduction or whatever outcome they may be established. So what technology they decide to incorporate it, how they decide to incorporate it, and the end goal in mind of the final design of the shoe really is based upon theories about what right. we're trying to achieve, right? And that's really where this paper that you recently wrote I think fills a nice gap because it summarizes in a very understandable way for those of us who don't necessarily stay up on the foot science research and have translated to more of a clinical audience to be able to say, look, these are the the three, four, five areas that really are driving footwear science to date. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really think the, the paper came about because I switched from a kinesiology department with a lab staff who was, you know, an ultra marathon runner, like professional ultra marathon runner, professional steeplechaser, you know, someone who finalists for the Olympic trials, people that were very skilled at what they do and very into the footwear and diversification of footwear for certain types of performance gain switched into a, a, a clinical department. So now I sit in, in rehab and rehabilitation medicine. So working with the physical therapy students, working with the physical medicine uh, and rehabilitation fellows, the nuance is kind of somewhat gone, right? So most of my physical therapy students, and I'm sure if they hear me, will roll their eyes (laughs) when they're like, well, can't you just tell us what we should say? Or can't you just give us a nice little checklist Mm -hmm. of what we should do? And it's just really, it's not that simple. And I, I think the, you know, being in, in footwear research, you, you kind of forget that people, they, the the origin story is lost of like, right. right? Why you decide to, to make your recommendations. Right. Exactly. And I think every time the story of how the three primary types of shoes evolved, you know, the, the, the neutral, the stability and the motion control and the backstory behind that usually kind of is eye-opening for a lot of mm-hmm. people when they hear that. And so I think now to be able to introduce them to other concepts then and where the industry is moving is really, really beneficial. So as a, a reminder for our listeners, it's all posted on the, the, the podcast download page, but uh, we're talking, uh, about the paper that Christine recently authored with her co-authors, running injury paradigms and their influence on footwear design features and runner assessment methods, a focused review to advance evidence-based practice for running medicine clinicians. And this is an open access publications that we'll put the link on our website so you can access it uh, as you need to. So let's see, let's get into it. You identify four main paradigms. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And one of them is probably one that most of our listeners are at least somewhat familiar with. Sure. And that is the, the pronation control paradigm. Can you maybe describe that a little bit, what the rationale is and some of the, uh, the key footwear features? Yep. So pronation control paradigm is based upon um, the idea, the concept that too much rear foot eversion, right, causes pronation during running. And that leads to uh, tibial rotation, and that causes increased forces or incre increased stresses at the knee. And since most recreational runners have knee injuries, right, that's half of the injuries you see, fixing the rear foot aversion by restricting it with a shoe, with a some type of, of technology in the shoe should fix the problem, right? Should work up the chain and fix the problem injury's gone. So if you, if you have a patient that you're trying to decide if that's the, the approach you want to do, how would you assess this? And how does that drive your recommendations for the need for this? Yeah. So the typical assessment was, or I guess, you know, for some people still is uh, static foot posture, right? Double leg foot posture, assessing arches, assessing rear foot position, and then moving to some single leg position, see if the arch changes. If you have a, a treadmill in your, in your clinic, or if you have, you know, some type of software looking at the amount of rear foot eversion in mid stance uh, during running. Yeah. And now the big question, how much evidence is there is to, to support or refute that paradigm? Um, there is a lot of evidence that does not support that, right? Both in footwear and in just basic running related injury literature, right? And so I think that's that's one of the reasons we, we, we another reason we wanted to put this out is I think naively we thought once, <laughs> once you realize that rear foot aversion doesn't seem to have a lot of support, literature support for causing injuries, or at least having some like general running related injury risk, then that assessment and that recommendation for footwear would just evaporate. And it really hasn't. Mm -mm. Yeah, it sure hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sure hasn't, despite, yeah. like you say, the plethora of studies, large studies too. We're not talking yeah, ends ones. of 30 or 40. We're talking ends of a thousand plus and yeah. no relationship. Yeah, no relationship. Now that's not to say, I think, and this is where we kind of get into the clinic side, that if you have a patient in front of you and they have, mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty significant pronation and they, they're, you know, maybe they have peroneal tendonitis or tendinosis and, and you think in the short term, one of the ways to reduce that would be giving them, you know, a, a shoe that kind of helps, helps reduce that rear foot aversion. That's not to say you can't, you can't, um, choose that, or you can't select that for them. But I think understanding that in general, those, those kind of like blanket statements really don't apply and you really have to use case-by-case -case analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Paradigm two. Paradigm two. Next one is impact force modification. Mm -hmm. So can you describe a little bit about that and its rationale as well as the footwear features of interest? Yes. Yes. So this paradigm deals with uh, largely with ground reaction force. So whenever you hit the ground, you have impact forces that you experience through your joints. And um, typically 
runners who rear foot strike or have a, a, a longer stride um, are thought to have higher impact forces. And by impact forces, we mean these, these vertical forces that, that are your uh, vertical impact peak, uh, your uh, vertical loading rate, and your peak ground reaction forces, your peak force. Those are the kind of the three big ones that people talk about. And so um, the, the, the concept was that, well, you know, look, injury equals load greater than tolerance, right? That's kind of like our common um, standard. So if you have too much load, i.e. Too, too high of ground reaction forces coming through at impact, then that's uh, could potentially be a risk factor for injury. So if we just add some cushion, then that dampens the load that you're experiencing from the ground. Okay. Injury's gone. Injury's gone. <laughs> Injury's gone. <laughs> That's right. So how do you assess whether somebody may need that that approach or might might benefit from that approach? And then what recommendations do you have? Yes. Yeah, so um, if you have the the luxury of having a biomechanics lab, then you can use uh, instrumented force plates or um, or instrumented treadmill or force plates because you need to you need to get the vertical ground reaction force. That's your kind of primary measure. Um, and if you don't have that, which most clinicians don't, you know, you, Brian, and a lot of people have put out these kinematic correlates, right? So running parameters, running form parameters that are associated with high impact, right? And so that could be lower step rate, that could be a longer stride, that could be a higher foot inclination angle. All of these are associated with um, changes or, or higher, potentially higher ground reaction forces. All right. Evidence. Uh, so not too much, <laughs> <laughs> right? So not too much. Well, footwear related, having more cushion doesn't seem to lower your impact forces, right? At least external forces. There's it, some... I was just going to say, does that include these, the, not, they're not new anymore, but the maximal shoes, I mean, those are an example of an, an, right. over, an, an extra cushioned aspect to it. Right. Yeah. And, and um, really this, the, the impact force modification started with these, with traditional cushioning, right? You're kind of adding, you know, you're somewhere around 20 millimeters of cushioning and, and minimalist footwear and maximalist footwear grew out of this paradigm. They kind of are offshoots of this paradigm, but you know, the research is pretty consistent that, that more cushion, more thickness is not reducing those impact forces. And really people with, with softer shoes or, or more thick sometimes you see a spike or an increase mm -hmm. in those forces, mm -hmm. right? So there's that, there's the footwear side that says the technology is not, you know, doing what we intended it to do. And then there's the injury side that's saying, well, maybe ground reaction forces weren't this, you know, magic, or this, this crystal ball, like we mm -hmm. thought it was for prediction of running related injuries. And that's coming out more and more, especially as we get more sophisticated technology, or I should say more data period, I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. More, more large scale data sets right, to be able right. to drive it. Yeah. And so that's really evolved. It's funny because like, you know, pronation control and impact forces that were uh, the classic mm -hmm. mechanisms that we always defer to for running related injuries. And obviously the evidence is not either is not strong enough yet to support or refute or is strong enough to refute uh, right. those those paradigms. And so that's kind of led to groups to start to come up with theories around other 
ideas that we should be using to inform how we develop footwear. And so the next two are really in those areas. I would say they're in their infancy in many mm-hmm. ways in terms mm-hmm. of the science for sure. But even in terms of awareness, I would say that a lot of clinicians aren't even aware that these are our are, are aspects that are driving footwear development. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think you bring up two really good points is, is paucity of research is not the same as unsupported findings, right? right? And right. so the, the, the former two paradigms really do seem like they have enough studies to say, you know, let's look for some other options, mm-hmm. but, but uh, prefer, preferred movement path or the habitual joint motion path and comfort filter. These are, these are the newer kind of uh, emerging paradigms that, that, you know, I, I think the reason clinicians maybe haven't heard about them is twofold. One, most things are published in footwear science. And I know when I was a clinician, I religiously read JOSPT and that's probably it, right? So where would you even get some of this information, mm-hmm. right? And the, the people that are um, largely kind of testing and, and pushing out these concepts are engineers, mm-hmm. right? So they're, 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 those, the conferences that they present at are, are not CSM. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other reason is that the, the in-store, the, the running shoe specialty store assessment or that kind of connection with, with clinical assessment really hasn't changed. Like there's nothing to kind of grab onto for these, uh, these two newer paradigms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about each one of those a little bit more. So the third one is habitual joint motion path or, or preferred movement path that Christine alluded to earlier. So let's, let's chat on that one a little bit. What's the rationale behind it and the key footwear features? Yeah. So the rationale is that everyone's joints take the path of least resistance, right? It has this kind of trajectory and motion that it likes to uh, move in and footwear that takes you out of that motion causes stresses where there shouldn't be stresses or causes increased muscle activity because it's trying to push you back to the preferred path. And then that causes forces, um, or, you know, increased fatigue and, and that caught on it, you know, subsequently causes problems. And so for, for this paradigm, the, the real shift here is that there's not one specific footwear feature like the other two um, that are kind of linked to this. This is much more holistic and really trying to assess the shoe itself to the runner's deviation from their uh, habitual path, habitual joint motion path. So in that regard, then how, how would you assess and make a recommendation on using this paradigm? Yeah. So this, I think is a hard one, you know, Brooks has done it with their run signature mm-hmm. and they kind of had to have this online decision tree. And, um, you know, if you cut the flagship stores here, so if you come here, uh, to Seattle, you, you might get their, um, their, uh, clinical assessment or their in-store assessment of how to, how to look at, um, deviations and habitual joint motion path. Mm -hmm. And there's a published article, I think in 2020, um, Matt Trudeau put out an article uh, describing that. I think it's probably in footwear science clinicians, but uh, (laughs) you might be able to find it. (laughs) Um, So what that looks like is you're doing a a kind of a a double leg squat, and then you're running 
and they're assessing the deviation in knee position, internal rotation and knee flexion, um, and then deciding based on a series of shoes that you run in, which one is creating the least amount of deviation from your habitual path, right? So that's the only, truly like the only clinical um, evaluation that, that's out there. Otherwise for, you know, people in the clinic, you're really kind of on your own thinking about how qualitatively you can assess whether mm -hmm. someone's running shoe is, is, is not doing or is pulling them off that path. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And as we alluded to, you know, this is a, a newer, it, it's, sure. it's been around for a while, decade plus. Um, what kind of evidence do we have at this point? You know, we don't have a lot, right? So there were, um, there's been one study that looks at knee volume of knee cartilage mm -hmm. for uh, runners that are high deviators, they call them, and that the, the volume is, is changed after 75 minutes of running. Um, I think this is probably a question for Rich Souza. Maybe he's your next guest. Like, <laughs> I, I would assume that your, your cartilage volume is probably changing, period, right, after mm -hmm. 75 minutes of running. Um, but uh, other than that, most studies have looked at used variability, uh, some type of variability, either in um, a standard deviation away from a runner's style or some kind of statistical model looking at um, the repeatability of running style. Mm -hmm. or EMG mm -hmm. to see if, um, if this holds up, but, but to be honest, a lot of, a lot of the, the studies currently are more proof of concept, right. Mm -hmm. Rather than looking at, um, does this really reduce injury? Yeah. And that leads us then to our fourth paradigm, which is the comfort filter. And this, this has been around for a while. This has been around for a good two decades. Yeah. Um, but again, I think it's still one that not a lot of people necessarily are familiar with or has, has the evidence behind to be able to truly, you know, differentiate or determine its value. But let's go to back to the beginning, rationale and key footwear features for comfort filter. Yeah. So the rationale is if you choose a shoe that is not comfortable, right? Or not your most comfortable, then you'll be kind of kicked off. It's not, they're, they're intertwined with uh, habitual joint motion, but, but not mm -hmm. exact. So it'll kind of kick you off of your preferred movement path. You'll increase muscle activity. You'll, you know, potentially change the way you run. There goes injury. Yep. So how do you assess and recommend using that paradigm? So this is probably the easiest one to assess, right? <laughs> this, is that comfortable or not? <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it makes sense. It's logical. And I think, I think you know, we've put out some, um, really just some opinions to say that I think comfort and fit, what you see again and again when we ask runners and, and um, when we do some running studies, that's kind of a, basically like a first order parameter. Like most people are not, going to run in a shoe that's uncomfortable unless you're mm -hmm. running in your racing spikes. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it, it logically makes sense, but there, there aren't too many studies kind of supporting, um, the validity of it, right. There's yeah. a study within souls to, that, that showed that, um, comfort is very individual, right. Mm -hmm. Very runner specific. And if you do choose of the runners that chose their most comfortable insole, um, they got, there was like 50% less injuries, but again, you know, it's, 
I don't know anyone that's not a that's not an elite runner that chooses to run in a really uncomfortable shoe. Yeah, I know some of their early work tried to be a little more objective in the sense mm -hmm. of moving away from self-reported comfort and trying to look at mechanoreceptor sensitivity to different frequencies mm -hmm. and what sort of a, of a, a, a material filter was in the shoe and what frequencies would be dampened or not to try to see if they could come up with a match. The idea of the filter concept, right? And I haven't seen a lot of that continued work. It pops up every so often. But uh, yeah, the comfort side of it's always interesting, like you say, because it's not just what what the runner is perceiving and, and considering when they make their determination of comfort is so much more than what the shoe may be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, right? It, it can be how the shoe looks. It can mm -hmm. be you know, yeah. it, other pieces that it's hard to separate from their, their measure of comfort. Yes, absolutely. And we, we, you know, we survey tons of runners and, and we, we always ask them what features you look for when you buy shoes and comfort fit, what it looks like brand, right? Those are the things that really kind of pop up to the top. Um, and, and comfort does seem to be a different, it, it, at least in my work, we looked at the ride of a shoe or the experience of, of the, mm -hmm. the shoe and comfort does seem to be a different construct, but it, it is kind of, it's, it's along the same lines as pain, right? You have this little box, this comfort box, and you're putting right. everything right. in, everything yeah. you think. Yeah. So. All right. So now let's go back to the question that I opened this with, which was if you had uh, to provide advice to a patient on footwear and you think about these four paradigms, what do you walk away? What, which ones are you using in your decision-making, but how, what advice and how do you approach footwear recommendations now compared to how you did 10 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago? So I, I definitely um, have a different bend, right? So I'm kind of pulling in the clinical aspect of the sense that you still have to assess the runner, right? And there's still kind of a, a mechanical piece, a, an energy piece or a load piece that you have to, to try to understand why this person is getting injured and whether or not you can relieve that, that load, right? We don't have great, a great understanding, but in the absence of, of research, in the absence of evidence, we still make decisions. There's clinicians out there that are, you know, trying as hard as they can to make, to do evidence-based practice, but we don't have a lot of evidence for a lot of things. Um, so I think, you know, the first and foremost is what, what do I think is actually driving this injury? And do I think some type of feature of a shoe would help either short in the short term, take away that problem or is potentially, you know, pushing them over the edge? <laughs> Right. And then I, I really think about purpose, running purpose and diversification. So, you know, what are you using the shoe for? Most recreational runners have like one to two shoes that they basically do everything with, um, where elite runners are, you know, they probably have eight shoes, right. For all, for different purposes. What, what are you using the shoe for? And are the task demands of that purpose. So sprint workouts, hill workouts, whatnot. If I add the feature to that and I understand what you look like and what, what you as the patient, your problems are, um, is there a match essentially? Yeah. Right. So I know that sounds so convoluted, but you know, that's truly how I, I try to look at it. And I, I think more and more what, what I'm hoping that, um, clinicians will start start thinking about is the feature itself, because there's, you know, tons of features that are in 
a shoe, right? We're kind of packing a bunch of different things and think about the feature itself and how it does potentially change the biomechanics and then whether or not that change in biomechanics is a problem for your patient. Yeah, I guess when it comes, that was that was great, great summary. When it comes to footwear, do you have any um, like key mantras that you would recommend that clinicians at least adhere to it in some capacity? Um, well, the one thing that I think consistently comes out in research is that lighter shoes seem to be better performatively, right? Lighter sh shoe mass seems to have an effect, right? Mm -hmm. Weight on the, the end of your shoe. So if you can, if a runner can, can tolerate it, then a lighter shoe will probably, assuming that everyone would like to run a little bit faster if they could, or maybe with a little bit less effort, a lighter shoe seems to be beneficial, mm -hmm. right? And then I, I think the, the other, the other aspect is to just keep keep your eye on things and kind of keep up with the literature. So, it, it, you know, we don't have to have this uh, podcast in another 30 years, because, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. So. No, that was, that was very good. And again, thanks. Thank you, Christine, for joining us today. It was a good overview of it. And I think it's, it's really important that for the, the audience to recognize that there is no one or two key drivers to footwear prescription. It's, as you mentioned, there's a bigger holistic approach that needs to be considered. Um, and the idea that you're going to have an algorithm uh, that you can reduce it down in, in a, in a visit, in a patient visit, it's not realistic. Not yet. I mean, that's all, yeah. it's everybody's goal to go that direction, but we are not there yet. And whatever current algorithms are being promoted, are not supported at this right. time. And, and to, to know that, you know, the, the features of some, some of the current shoe, shoes now, like the Vaporfly mm -hmm. or the Hoka's, you know, they longitudinal bending stiffness with plates, increased uh, midsole thickness. There is a, a biomechanical response to that sure. and the, the driver is performance, but there might be some unintended consequences for your patient, right? Mm -hmm. And that you have to really kind of understand, understand why, so you could make a change, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. The, I like to think of it as the, the biomechanics of footwear are sound. Mm -hmm. The consequences of those applied to the runner, that's where the unknown part comes in. And, and that's, that's the mystery at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again, Christine. Great to yeah. have you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, we'd like to get you back on again when you got uh, more stuff comes out, which will probably be by tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Jeremy Stoker. Jeremy, you were awfully quiet today. Did you lose yeah. your voice? Yeah, must have. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Reminder, check check for updates on the 2022 Mountainland Running Summit, September 29th through October 1st at summit.mlrehab.com. As always, you can find more information on running medicine resources offered by Mountainland Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com run. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. 
Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.